Okay, the life and times of the Rambam. And almost all of the objects that I'm going to be showing you this evening are going to be coming from the Cairo Gniza. So let's talk for a moment about the Cairo Gniza. Uh, we've spoken about it in the past, but just a quick reminder. This is the interior of a, a synagogue in Cairo that's known as the Ben Ezra Synagogue. And this shul was built many, many centuries ago. Uh, in fact, I believe it was built I believe it was built in the 10th century. And um, it, was, it was taken down in the late 1800s and rebuilt. But they say that they rebuilt it as an, as an exact replica of what it used to be. And as you can tell, there is the women's gallery at the right and on the left. And if you were to go up to the women's gallery on the left-hand side and walk all the way toward the Aran Kodesh, which is the northern facing wall, then you would see high up on the wall a little gap. And this gap over there is a chamber. And in this chamber, for many centuries, the Jewish community of Cairo was keeping their documents. And this is known as the Cairo Gniza. All Jewish communities, for as long as we can remember, had a Gniza. But the difference of the Cairo Gniza and all other Gnizas is that usual a regular Gniza in a shul, every year or so, uh, someone comes takes the material out, buries it in a cemetery, and it decomposes in the earth. Uh, here, however, uh, for whatever reasons, for reasons that no one really knows, the documents were never taken out. And they remain there, starting for the 10th century, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, the 14th, the 15th, the 16th, only more and more and more being added in this chamber and in other rooms in this shul as well. It's during the age when Europeans come to Egypt to start taking uh, some of the um, uh, very uh, important uh, artifacts that were there in that country and bringing it back to Paris and bringing it back to London, the Jews started doing the same. And they come to this shul and they learn about this treasure and they start taking it out. And um, I actually heard, I didn't read much about this, that a few weeks ago, there was, or a few months ago, there was some sort of new discovery in the Cairo Gniza. The, uh, the Egyptian authorities came and took everything away. Uh, so uh, maybe we should look that up after to see what happened over there. Uh, anyway, for our purposes tonight, uh, we are going to focus on the Rambam. Because what happened here is that there is so much writing from the Rambam himself, autographs, that we have as a result of this Gniza, which means that at a certain point, his archive was dumped into this uh, Gniza. It's hard to imagine why this would happen. Didn't people realize how great he was and what did they want to have held on to his materials? So um, it's a good question to have. I don't really know exactly what the answer uh, to that is. Just before I show you this material, just a little bit perspective. If I asked you, have you ever seen Rashi's handwriting? The answer is no. Have you ever seen Rabinu Tam's handwriting? The answer is no. Have you ever seen the Rift's handwriting? The Rush's handwriting? The answer is no. Have you ever seen the Marshaw's handwriting? No. Go down the list. We don't have the actual handwriting of almost any G'dayla Yisrael from the Middle Ages. If you go to the modern period starting the 1700s, 1800s, we have some stuff. But before that, we have almost nothing. In the Rambam, we have a lot. And almost all of it is thanks to the Cairo Gnizo. So here, I'll just show you one classical uh, document. This is written in um, a Judeo-Arabic, which means it's the Arabic language, but it's written in, in Hebrew alphabet. And this is much of the material in the Cairo Gnisa is written in that language. And at the bottom, oh, basically this is a document where someone is, is asking uh, 
that a certain Jew take care of a Jew. There's a Jew named Yitzchak, and he's just come to town. He's new here. We need to look out for him. Someone, he needs help paying the tax that Jews need to pay. Uh, so if the community can please help him. Who signs it? If you look at the bottom, you're able to see the Bar Maimon is very clear. But the, before that is Moshe Bar Maimon Zatzal. And what this gives us is this gives us a basic document. Now we know what the Rambam's handwriting is. And all of a sudden now we're able to compare it to other things that don't have his signature. And we're able to assess and figure out uh, if this indeed was written by him. So we're going to break this down into uh, five or six different categories. We're going to begin by talking about communal, uh, communal affairs. So first up is this document over here. And it is also signed Moshe ben Maimon at the bottom, this very similar uh, signature. The last wor word presumably is Zatzal or something very similar uh, to that. And this is what it says. Um, the scholars estimate that this is around the year 1169 when this is written. And the Rambam is writing in his own handwriting as follows. Regarding the captives, may God release them from captivity. Act upon it in the same way as we, all the judges and elders and the students have acted, going around day and night, urging people in the synagogues, the markets, and at the doors of the dwellings in order to collect something toward this great goal. Having contributed as much as we ourselves are able, you too should do for them as fits your generosity. Exert yourselves to collect it quickly and send it to us with our above-mentioned dignitary, Rev. Aaron Halevi. So what happened here? Well, around the year 1169, there's, let's back up a little. In the year 1099, the Crusaders leave Europe and they go to conquer the Holy Land to take it back from the Muslim infidels. And they establish the Crusader Kingdom in the land of Israel. The Rambam, when he leaves uh, um, Spain and Morocco and, 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 and heads to the Middle East, he first goes to Eretz Yisrael. But it's very difficult for Jews to live there during this Crusader period, which is why he makes his way down to Mitzrayim. And he lives there. Uh, in the 1160s, the Crusaders invaded Egypt. They wanted parts of Egypt as well. And any time there is war, you always have captives. And when you have captives, one of the um, uh, 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 implications of war is that those captives are being sold. And so therefore, the Rambam kicks into gear here as a communal leader living in Mitzrayim, though he's relatively new there. And he is encouraging a Pidyon Shavuyim campaign. This is the old traditional Pidyon Shavuyim where Jews are literally picked up by troops and they're being withheld from the, their freedom is being withheld until the Jewish community can come and, and, and free them. And he's saying, Rambam's saying here, here in Fostat and Cairo, we already collected everything we can. We need more money. He sends a shliach and he says, please send this money back uh, with him. There are, in fact, another three or four documents about raising money from the same period for the purpose of Pinyon Shvuyim. And it's with this in mind that all of a sudden when we come to Halacha and Rambam, uh, we look at it in a little bit of a different light. Here's a passage from the Rambam, Hilchus Matnas Hanim, and Mishnah Torah, Perakhes, Halachayud. And the Rambam here says that Pidyan Shvuyin comes, Koinem le Parnasas Hanim, Ulachasaisam. Pidyan Shvuyin comes before we regular support of the poor in terms of food and in terms of clothing. And he goes on and says, There is no mitzvah as great as the mitzvah of Pidyan Shvuyin. Now, already here, this has been noted by others, Rambam seems to be going off his usual tune. Most of Mishnah Torah is, here is what the halacha is. Rambam doesn't spend all that uh, uh, much time in terms of elaborating on how special and great a mitzvah is uh, in terms of like Musr language. Yes, at the end of halachas, he does have that style. So at the end of Matnas Hanim, maybe he'll drop a halacha that's more like motivational. At the end of a sefer as well. But to have in the middle of Perek Ches Halacha Yod of Matnas Hanim, to have this... Um, 
to have this type of uh, passage is unusual, but it, it becomes even more. He goes on and he says that one who is in captivity, they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're naked, their life is in danger. And then he goes on to say, and if you don't redeem this person, you're over on the verse that says, which is a verse saying you must give charity. Don't, don't stand over, uh, by as the, shed of the, the blood of your uh, sibling is being shed. This is a command that we shouldn't watch a slave, a Jewish person, be, be enslaved by a non-Jew. He's been mevatal this assay of tzedakah. That's another mitzvah of tzedakah. Look how many psukim he's quoting over here. This is very, very intense. There is no Gemara that puts this all together. Rambam is not just taking a Gemara. Yes, it is based on a Gemara, but ultimately this is the Rambam's own work. So when we go back and we see these types of documents and we see the real life issue that was going on at the time and we see how Rambam himself has to get involved in this and look at the language where he says that we were going door to door. He says the judges, elders and students were going around day and night urging people in the shuls and the markets and at the doors of the dwellings in order to do Pidin Shvuim. So suddenly we have a better understanding of the Halacha and when seeing this Halacha we also have a better understanding of how this actually played out and the Rambam put his money where his, where his, where his pen was and actually implemented this in day-to-day -day life. We'll move now to another document. And this one is just a very, very brief note. Very brief note. It does not have the Rambam's signature, but the handwriting is unmistakably similar to the other materials that do have his signature. And it says as follows, Will the Sheikh al-Watig, so Sheikh just means a prominent person, so they use that word a lot in Judeo-Arabic. And Awatik is his name. May God preserve him. Uh, the language, you, you don't write in the second person. You write in the third person. But he's writing to Sheikh Awatik. Um, enter town so that the meeting could be convened with him on Shabbos in the presence of the elders and it will be decided what is to be done. May his welfare increase. As for your note, it arrived too wet to be read. Um, <laughs> so that, that's a good lie. As for your note, it arrived too wet, wet to be read. Someone mentioned to me that's similar in today's context. If you say your email went to spam. <laughs> but anyway, and then on the side it says, it is particularly important that you not come late. Greetings. Okay, so this is like Rambam uh, convening some sort of meeting on Shabbos. Um, this is like, what is going on over here? We don't know. We'll probably never know what exactly is happening here. But the Rambam is basically inviting someone to come Make it an important meetings usually about communal matters aren't on Shabbos. This is not a shear. It doesn't sound like a shear Torah. This sounds like that they're going to discuss some sort of communal matter. It must have been a real emergency. You have to uh, assume. Okay. So yeah, that's a, a Jewish person who went by that name. Yep. Okay. Here's the next uh, uh, document, also in the realm of the Rambam's communal affairs. There's someone who's writing, this is not the Rambam's handwriting, but it's someone who's reporting a visit that he did, had with the Rambam. He says, I and Al-Galal, Al-Galal is his son, proceeded to enter. I kissed his noble hand and he received us with a most cordial welcome. He said to me, come and be seated, young man, beckoning me, beckoning me to sit on the edge of the Iwan. An Iwan is just a raised platform where Rambam would normally sit, opposite where he himself was seated. There was no one else seated in the Iwan save him, Rabavram, and myself. Rabavram, the Rambam had one son, and here he's being mentioned as being in his father's presence. Then there transpired that which a book would prove insufficient to describe. Uh, 
you see someone here who clearly is like overawed by his being present with greatness. And that's where you're getting this type of line. Uh, next, caskets were brought, and he began, this just means uh, uh, some sort of plate, uh, and he began to eat lemon cakes. So here we have some information about the type of food that the Rambam ate. In the meantime, Rabbi Avram, may God protect him, had taught Al-Galal, his son, a term with which to address Rabbi Moshe. Upon his reciting it, Rabbi Moshe laughed with amusement and sported with the child. So here we see an interesting interaction with Rambam and a young, uh, young kid. I was first to leave the house while Al-Galal remained behind talking to the usher in the vestibule. vestibule. So here we learn about his gabai. The Rabbam had a gabai who hung out in the, in the hallway, uh, in the foyer, uh, who's allowing people to come in and out. So when you see these types of things, all of a sudden a picture of this person starts coming, uh, starts coming to life. Okay, there are many more examples of this, but now let's move to the Rambam, not as a communal leader, but as a teacher. And here we have a document, and when scholars looked at this document, they realized right away that it, it was a commentary on Baba Kama. And, um, and the words, it's discussing Inyanim and Baba Kama written in Judeo-Arabic, uh, not the Rambam's handwriting. But then they notice the following, and here I'm making it a little bigger so you can see. It says in Judeo-Arabic, Pirush Mima Samana, which sounds very similar to Shamanu. I put the Hebrew right below it. So Pirush Mima Shamanu Mimoron Verabenu Moshe Harav Hagado Yisrael. Shimru Tsuroi, that's the Rosh Hashanah for Shin Sadik. May God, Tsuroi is Hashem, may the rock protect him, Min Baba Kama. And here we have a very, very unique thing, a note that a student took in the Shir. The Rambam was giving Shurim to students, and he gave a Pshat in Baba, Baba Kama, and this student wrote down what that Pirish uh, was. Now we'll move to Rambam as the Poisik, as the one who's giving piske dinim that are coming his way. So here we have, there are a number, there are a lot of these questions that are written in other people's hands. And it's interesting because the Rebbe did something similar. The, the Rambam would write in brief on the note what the answer was. And then I guess someone would convey it or write it separately. And then they kept that original copy in the Rambam's archive, which made its way into the Gnizah. So here you have a question written in someone else's hand that says as follows. An elderly widow accused him, and there's no reason to suspect this man on account of her, that he harassed her with words seeking to have relations with her. This is very, very interesting. A man is writing to the Rambam saying that a woman accused a man of sexual harassment. But notice, before the man even writes what the claim is, he already tells the Rambam not to believe it. Look, look, look at the way I translate. An elderly woman accused him, we don't know what the accusation is, right? And there's no reason to suspect this man on account of her that he harassed her with words seeking to have relations with her. She had no witnesses or evidence. He has never been accused by anyone other than her. We know that in our day, um, this is, these are the talking points that always come up or no one else complained. She seeks to hurt him smirch his reputation, deprive him of his livelihood, and embarrass him before all. Okay, so what do you do? Should her words about him be believed or not? What do we do in this case? The question then goes on to say, could he make a cheyrem against her for accusing him or not? Uh, the Rambam's answer is here. This is his handwriting written on the same uh, note, and he basically says, don't accept her words. Um, we, that's not kosher edos al and so he says uh, it can be disregarded. What's best in this situation is to stop the talking, don't issue a cheyrem, don't discuss this in public, v'kasav Moshe. Many of his shuvas end with those two words, v'kasav Moshe, and Moshe has written. So obviously, to discuss wider, the, this issue really warrants bigger discussion, like how does halacha deal with these types of scenarios where there aren't witnesses and a woman is harassed or isn't harassed and uh, one side could be right, the other side could be right. How to deal with that is a 
is an important topic, and obviously that's not our purpose today, but it is interesting that this is one of the chuvas that we have from in the Cairo Gnizo. Here's another interesting example. We don't really know the context here, but in Rambam's handwriting it says, and the father-in-law cannot prevent this at all. So some sort of question came up, and the answer was the father-in-law can't get in the way, the of Moshe. But the reason I'm showing this to you in addition to the fact that it's a second example is because you'll notice here that a later, and, and people who know handwriting have said that the Koy Omar Hashem uh, material was added later. So basically you have a letter Rambam wrote a tshuva on the letter, and then 100 or 200 years later, someone regarded that extra space as real estate <coughs> with which to use for writing, for practicing writing, for writing a prayer or whatever. It's almost unfathomable, unfathomable today. If you had a ksava the Rambam, you know, if we had a ksava the Alter Rebbe, 200 years after the Alter Rebbe, we're holding on to that, we're not letting anyone touch it. But um, they, they obviously looked at things a little differently then, and someone felt completely comfortable of putting some sort of uh, prayer, Amar uh, about uh, Yerushalayim or whatever it is, some sort of slicha, and putting this on, uh, on this document. As I said before, there are many examples of questions with very, very brief answers of the Rambam. Many of them have been published in the Svarim about the Rambam that have been published over the last hundred or so years. Many of these answers have been published in the Chuvas. Now we'll move to the Rambam's famous works. And the first famous work that he wrote was the Pirush HaMishnah. Um, according to, uh, there are sources that indicate that he actually started writing this Pirush before he came to Egypt, while he was in Morocco or en route from uh, Morocco to, um, to uh, Eretz, uh, Eretz Israel. In the Cairo Gniza, they, they found um, these two pages and a few others that are clearly the Rambam's Pirush HaMishnah, clearly his handwriting as well, but it's clearly not the final draft, because it's not the way we have it. And so it's an earlier draft of the Pirush HaMishnah. It's this particular one is Masech Shabbos Perek Beis, and, um, and, 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 uh, and we have a few, of these, uh, a few of these copies. Now, when it comes to Pirush HaMishnah, we're lucky. Even without the Cairo Gniza, we actually have the majority of this Pirush written in the Rambam's hand. Now, I'll stress again, this is unheard of. All of the Gdali Yisrael that wrote Svarim, we don't have their original copy that they wrote. For Perush HaMishnayis, this we have an early draft. But we also have almost the entire thing. The Rambam wrote a Perush HaMishnah on Shisha Sidre Mishnah. For five of the six Darim, we have Rambam's original handwriting. And the story of its preservation is like this. It's a Mitzrayim. At a certain point, not entirely clear, it makes, it, it makes its way to Syria. It's there for a few hundred years. Then there are two, not, there are, um, there's, there's a non-Jew who comes to Syria in the 1600s. His name is uh, Pokok, and he is a collector of this material. And somehow he convinces whoever, is in, whoever has this in their custody to sell it to him. He brings it back to Oxford, and it makes its way into his collection and eventually into Bodleian Library in Oxford. So some of it is there, some of it is in the National Library in Israel. So five of the six, there presumably was a sixth, but it has been lost. That is where we get the famous image of the Rambam's Menorah. Everyone always talks about the Rambam's Menorah, he wrote a Menorah. How do we have the Rambam's Menorah? Because in, the, in his Pirush HaMishnayis, in the Seches Menaches, he writes here what the Pirush is. And this is his handwriting, this is his Pirush, and this is where the source of this image of the Menorah uh, of the Menorah comes from. So I'm just showing you this one page. Again, this is not from the Cairo Gniza. This would have survived even without, uh, even without the Cairo Gniza. This, however... Uh, no, the Rambam did not write Pidush HaMishnayis in Hebrew. He wrote it, Sefer HaMitzvah and Pidush HaMishnayis and Moron He wrote in Judeo-Arabic. They were translated later by others. 
and in, this, in our generation, there's been recently new translations that are, have been issued based off, uh, uh, based off these originals. And is this the final draft? So this is the final draft, but you're able to tell. If you look on the left-hand page, there's cross-outs. There's new material added in the margin. So this was Rambam's master copy. But as we know from here, and we know this from other works as well, the book never finished. You have to remember, when someone publishes, prints a book today, there's a printing date. And once you print it, it's over. What can you do, right? But in those days, what did it mean to publish a book? You wrote it, and you said, okay, now people could come and copy it. But you still had your master copy at home, and you would go and make changes uh, to your work. And that's what Rambam was doing throughout his ages, and this, throughout his life. And this is true for here, what we're seeing here. And this is also true for, um, uh, for the other works as well. Which is why you have different versions. Of, why do we have different versions of Pirush HaMishnayis and the Rambam? Why do we have different versions of Mishnah Torah? The reason is because some were uh, copied, let's say, in the year 1190, but then Rambam in uh, introduced the change in 1192, and a new copy is copied in 1193. So this is one of the reasons why we have variations in the text of the Rambam. Okay. The later versions, but at least there it's all labeled and clear. Yeah, in the Okay, next, we're going to go to the aborted work. This is no relationship to uh, last week's uh, class. Um, the Rambam finished Pidush HaMishnayis and he was going to do another project. He's going to do another project. And the question is, what is his other project? What is his next book going to be? So for us, it's obviously, his next book is going to be Mishnah Torah. But it turns out, it wasn't so obvious. Where do we see that? So we'll develop the idea as follows. In Pidush HaMishnayis, Meseches Tamid, he writes over here, about this issue that uh, there is this, there's an issue of saying Aseris Adibris every day. In other words, there used to be an ancient minig to recite Aseris Adibris every day. The Talmud says you shouldn't do it. Because of the heretics. Okay, well, what's the problem? What are the heretics going to say? Well, what's the issue? So the Rambam here writes that the Gemara Bavli doesn't tell us what the issue was, but the Yerushalmi does tell us what the issue was. The issue was that there were people who were saying that only the Ten Commandments came from Sinai. And this is why we need to kind of negate that, and we don't make a big koch in the Aseris Adibris. Presumably, this is a reference to, uh, to Christianity, uh, because Christians, I believe, at least at some points, have said, made such a claim. And then he goes on to say, and look at that last line, this is in his Pirush HaMishnayis, Marnuze, and we already wrote this, We already wrote about this in the Halachis of the Yerushalmi that we authored. What Halachis of Yerushalmi did the Rambam author? We don't have anything from Halachas Yerushalmi that the Rambam authored. That's one reference. The second is the tshuva of the Rambam. And in the tshuva of the Rambam, he writes, Shaloi I have not had the time, Levar I have not had the time to explain the Halachas about the Yerushalmi. Uh, unlike the Rif who made uh, the halachas of the Bavli. So I, I tried doing it, but I have not had the time to explain it, to elaborate on it. So here Rambam said, let's just go back. Here he said that uh, I authored a halachas of Yerushalmi, and here he says that he has, excuse me, and here he says that I have not really had the time to explain it and to write it out in full. In other words, he seems to be saying that he started a work and he hadn't completed it, and indeed it never came down to us. Well, then the Cairo Gniza came along, and these two pages were found. And these two pages, when they looked at it, number one, it's the Rambam's handwriting, and number two, it's the Yerushalmi. It looks like the Yerushalmi. This is Yerushalmi and Meseches Brachis. You can actually see I'm make, making a little, 
larger here, you see actually at the top it says, B'Shem Hashem Kel Olam, right? The three dots is Hashem. We once did a class on how Hashem's name used to be written as three dots. That was a long time ago. But the Rambam begins all of his forum with those words. B'Shem Hashem Kel Olam. Every Sefer of Rambam begins with this. That's one of the hints. Uh, and then it says Brachis under it, and it says the chapter uh, heading. And then is the words, Me'em Asai. And this is a Yerushalmi, but it's not Yerushalmi because it doesn't follow the Yerushalmi uh, word for word. And so essentially what people realized was this is the lost work of the Rambam where he tried doing the following. We all know about the Rif. The Rif is Rabbi Yitzchak Al-Fasi. He lived in the 900s. And he basically realized that Gemara is very difficult for people to learn. So how are you going to simplify Gemara? So Rambam comes to that problem too. We'll see Rambam's approach. But the Rif's approach is different from the Rambam's approach. He says, I'm going to make a Maseches Babakama. It's going to be called Maseches Babakama. It's going to follow the flow of the Sugis of Babakama. But let's take out the Shakla Vitaria. Let's truncate it. Let's get it down. Let's make it simple. And then people can get the bottom line of each Sugya. And that's what the Rif was. Today it's not so common, but for many centuries it was very, very common for people to learn Rif, not Gemara. Rosh Yeshiva would give Shurim in the Rif and Daf, in, in the Rif Dafka, not in the Gemara. This is something that happened. So the Rif did it on the Bavli. Okay, the Rambam felt it was necessary to do the same thing with the Yerushalmi. Who's going to make a digest, a summary, a riff style work on the Yerushalmi? And it seems that the Rambam said, after I finished Pirush Mishnah, what's Pirush Mishnah? Something that aids a person in understanding the Mishnah. So now let me, so to aid someone in the Bavli, I don't need to do that. The riff did that. Let me now make a, a, something that will help people learn the next important primary text. What is that going to be? The Yerushalmi. That's what he's referring to when he says, I wanted to do what the Rav did, the Rif did, for the Halachas in the Bavli. And he started writing this work. And indeed, this is the Yerushalmi, but it's cut down. It's to the point. It's without the relative back and forth, even though the Yerushalmi has less of that. But it's with a focus. Focus on, on the core and important points. And, and so this is that work. But as we know, he started writing it, but he says he didn't have the time to fully write it out. In other words, this is a draft, and we have draft pages on Masechta. Brachis and on one other Masechta. I don't remember right now. Brachis and one other Masechta. There are two Masechtas that he did this for. So, in 1948, there was a, a Yid by the name of Rabbi Shaul Lieberman, who was in the JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary here in New York, a frumayid, but and a major, major, major Talmud Chacham. And he had a, that, this was his job. He was here in the JTS in New York. A lot of from people were not happy that he was there, but he was there. Anyway, he created a book called Hilchas HaYoshami L'Arabeinu Moshe Ben He printed this in 1948. Zal from the Rambam. And what he did here is he published what the Rambam wrote, but in addition, and footnotes all around, like explaining what's happening. But in addition, you'll notice that the pages, if you go back here, right, you notice that there's material torn off, and that's missing. So he could have just left it blank, but he decided, you know what, let me guess. I have the Yerushalmi in front of me. I know what the Rambam's trying to do. So let me try to guess what the Rambam would have done. How would he have been Makatsar these particular lines over here? And he did that. And he did that. He obviously set it off in a different font. The, his guesswork, he set off in a different font. Well, guess what? Um, a few years ago, there was someone who came along and found these two, this actually one piece, this is just two sides of the same page, this one piece, and it turns out is a perfect fit, both in terms of the paper, I know the color here, but that has to do with the photography, uh, and it's a perfect fit, and um, I didn't read it, but uh, the article that I read about this said that uh, Lieberman's guesses were spot on. Uh, with a few variations, he actually was able to anticipate what the Rambam would have wrote. So that really speaks to his, his, the great stature of his learning, which is really amazing. Uh, but what happens is the Rambam stops. 
And I'd like to suggest what happened over here. It wasn't just an accident. The Rambam goes to Mishnah Torah. And if you think about what Mishnah Torah is, you realize that the Rambam decided he's taking a different direction in life. Pirush HaMishnah is a subtext. What I mean by that is, I want you to learn Mishnah. You need to learn Mishnah. I'm going to help you learn Mishnah by creating a Pirush around the Mishnah. And the halachis of the Rif on the Yerushalmi would have been similar to that. We're working within the framework of the Talmud Yerushalmi. I want you to do Talmud Yerushalmi, but let me make an easier version for you to learn Yerushalmi. Well, we know that Mishnah Torah is a complete departure from that. Mishnah Torah isn't based on the Gemara. Well, I shouldn't say that. It is based on the Gemara, but it's not written in the format of the Gemara. It's not written, as, as the Rabbah himself says in an introduction, I am going to give you a text that all you need is Torah Shavik and this. In other words, this idea of truncating a Yerushalmi or writing a commentary on something else, that's in my past. For the future, it's about writing independent works that aren't uh, uh, secondary to something else. And that's why we get to Mishnah Torah. And that is probably why he says, why should I go and make a kitzer of the Yerushalmi? Let me make a kitzer of the entire Torah Shabbat Peh. And by the way, reorganized, reformatted, and structured, and not that you have a little bit of, uh, of uh, a sugya, a little in Ksubis, a little in Kedushan, and a little in Nazar, and then you have to figure out how they all work. No, I'm going to make it all organized. And not just the Yerushalmi, all of the Torah. So in other words, you can imagine, once he realized what he's doing with Mishnah Torah, so all of a sudden, the halachis on the Yerushalmi, that became the minor leagues, relatively speaking, and he decided not to invest himself in that. Ulay Shloimar, that that's what happened over here. Well, in the Cairo Gniza, we have drafts of the Mishnah Torah as well. In fact, last year to see my Rambam, I showed you some of them. I'm not going to show you the same one. I'm going to show you a different one. So here you have the following. This is a title page. I typed out what the Hebrew would be. Sefer, Achadosar, Vahu Sefer, Mishpatim. Now, you need to uh, realize the problem here. The problem here is, Sefer Mishpatim for us is the 13th book. There are 14th book, 14 books in Rambam. The last one is Shoiftim, 14. Number 13 is Mishpatim. Here it says, Sefer Achadasar Vahu, Sefer Mishpatim. Okay, uh, it seems that the Rambam uh, originally intended for Mishnah Torah to be 12 books. And we even, from this page, could figure out how this would have worked. The last four books are Nizikin, Kenyan, Mishpatim, and Shoiftim. And it seems that Rambam was going to take Nizikin. Kenyan and Mishpatim, and put it in one book, all called Mishpatim. And it would have been all the Baba Basras in one thing. And then, just like Baba, the Babas got divided into three, uh, the Rambam divided Nizik and Kenyan and Mishpatim. I'm not saying that it aligns perfectly, but the point is, he did take the Sugyas of the Babas, which in Shas was once one, divided into three, and he divided in his own way into three as well. You're able to see that clearly here, because he writes, um, this is Hilchais Nizikin, then he erased it and called it Niske Maman, and Niske Mamoin is not in our Mishpatim. Niske Mamin is the first halachis in Sefer Nizikin. So here you're able to see that Mishpatim was going to be the general book for what eventually became uh, Sefer Nizikin, Kenyan, and Mishpatim. And then at the bottom, you have the halacha, uh, the first halacha, where he writes about an animal that damages, and you see a line that he crossed out uh, because he he's in, in the drafting stage and, and this is uh, one example we have others uh, uh, about 30 or so pages now and where we have the drafts and as the Rebbe said about the Alter Rebbe with Tanya that it's good that we have the Madura Kama it's good that we have the earlier versions of the Tanya before the final print because we're able to see what the Alter Rebbe changed we get a deeper understanding and appreciation the Rebbe said this was Tav Shalom and Ches so if I may say, we can say the same thing about the Rambam. And there have been Talmud Chachamim who spent it. They, they work on this. I've seen this in rabbinic journals where they 
they look at the earlier drafts, what the Rambam changed, and why uh, the Rambam changes. Sometimes it's language, sometimes it's actually a matter of substance, where it's Indian or Halacha, where it's, you're able to see the Rambam changing. But all of this is in his drafts. All of this is in his drafts. Eventually, the Rambam had his final copy. We don't have Rambam's final copy. The master text, wherein he said, this is it, no one, no one has identified that today. I did show you last year something that is the next, the next thing after that, because what happened was, we have this. Here, it's not Rambam's handwriting. You could tell from the font that it's a professional scribe who wrote out Sefer Mada and Sefer Ava in his own hand, but then at the end of the book, it says the following. And it's the same handwriting. And what's basically happening here, in a nutshell, is as follows. There's a scribe who writes out a Mishnah Torah. The owner or the scribe comes to the Rambam and says, okay, we copied it, we wrote it. I want to now make sure that we got it right. You know, when you copy by hand, you're going to make mistakes. So can we compare it and spot check it against your master copy? And Rambam says, sure. Perhaps Rambam was used to getting these requests all the time. And then the guy was smart, and he goes over to the Rambam and he says, please autograph that this has been edited against your master copy, which is what happens. The Rambam writes it. Huga ani This is not a Cairo Gniza volume. This Mada and Avo with this signature at the end is not a Cairo Gniza. It too made its way, like the Pirish Mishnais from Egypt, it went to Syria. It was there for hundreds of years. An Englishman by the name of Robert Huntington, also in the 1600s came, also coaxed someone to sell it to him, brought it back to England and it's today in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Ah? So the Mishnah Torah is all written in Hebrew. Yeah, Mishnah Torah was always written in Hebrew. When the Rambam wrote Mishnah Torah, he, uh, he decided he's writing this like for all generations and for all Jews. So uh, this is unlike the other uh, words. No, he's writing it on his father Maimon. He's writing on his father Maimon, yeah. Okay. All right. So that's so that's in terms of that's in terms of the Mishnah Torah. So again, what we have is we have like a sandwich. We have the drafts. We have drafts of Rambam's Mishnah Torah. We have drafts of Rambam's Mishnah Torah. We have someone who copied from the master text. The master text is uh, is it has not yet been identified. Okay. This is in terms of the Mishnah Torah, and now let's move along to the Meira Nevuchim. After the Rambam writes Mishnah Torah, he writes a philosophical work, a very, very different type of work. He writes this in Judeo-Arabic, Meira Nevuchim. This is a work in Jewish philosophy. If I may say, this is about trying to bridge the gap between the, the values and beliefs of medieval Jews who adopted many thinking patterns of the Greek philosophers, and many of these were in contra- Diction to Yiddishkeit, how do you navigate these two worlds? And Bechlal, any time you try navigating two worlds, two philosophies, you're going to have challenges and problems, and so you're going to need great rabbis to try to write books to tell you how to do it, and that's essentially what Moira Nevuchim, uh, what Moira Nevuchim is. Uh, in the Cairo Gniza, there are drafts of the Moira Nevuchim. This draft is not written by Rambam. This, again, is a scribal hand. Ignore all the material in the margins. That is gibberish that someone added later. Uh, but what you're seeing over here is a, uh, the beginning of, uh, of the Mar Nevuchim. If you're able to tell, the beginning says, B'Shem Hashem Ke'el Olam. This is the beginning, the introduction of the Rambam's Mar Nevuchim written in a scribal hand. In fact, if you look, this is the Rambam Mishnah Torah that I showed you before. So on the left, you have the Mishnah Torah. On the right, you have 
the Mer Nevuchim and the fonts and the handwriting are very, very similar. Some have said that it really seems like this is the same scribe, the same one who wrote the Mishnah Torah uh, and then got the Rambam to autograph it is the same one who wrote this Mer Nevuchim. What's interesting about that is that the other side of this page looks like this. Now, again, here again, you have to ignore all that gibberish, but in, in the middle, you have three psukim or so, and, and that's here, blown up, okay? So that's this, and this is the Rambam's handwriting. And these are three psukim. The Rambam begins Marnavuchim with three psukim. These are three other psukim, but it's in the Rambam's hand. It seems like uh, uh, at one point there may have been other psukim. So all of a sudden, it seems like we have two instances of a relationship between this scribe and the Rambam. The Mar Nevuchim is written by the scribe. The Rambam writes introductory verses on it. The Mishnah Torah is written by the scribe. The Rambam signs it and autographs it. So uh, there's, there's, there's something brewing here about the relationship between these, uh, these two individuals. As for the actual body of the Mar Nevuchim, here's two pages. That is a draft of part one, uh, chapter 64 and 65 of the Mar Nevuchim. Uh, there's an, a Judeo-Arabic word at the top, something like pei samachlamid, which uh, means section or part. And it's, 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 not, it's not word for word what the Mernavuchim is today, but it's generally talking about the same things. And yes, here as well, there have been people who've gone through this material and said, ooh, so what are the changes? And the little that I saw, they're like, they feel that this is, like Rambam somewhat tempered some of his arguments in the final uh, draft, and that this is, to an extent, uh, less uh, more extreme uh, in terms of some of the points, but I'm no authority to be able to talk about that. Okay, uh, speaking about the Moran of Hochim, the Rambam is known as a big philosopher. People who have uh, uh, issues they want to discuss in philosophy, they're going to reach out to the Rambam. And on the right, you have a letter someone wrote to the Rambam where he's requesting for a meeting. In summary, he says he has philosophical questions. He says that he read the Moran of Hochim and he wishes to meet the Rambam to discuss. Uh, philosophical questions. And the Rambam answered him, but before we get to the answer, I'm blowing up part of the request over here. I want you to realize the first half of this long rotolus is all written in Hebrew, and it's all praise to the Rambam uh, about how great of a person that he is, and I'm giving him brachas. And toward the end of it is where you have uh, the actual request. Oh, it's all the way around. Toward the end, you have the... Okay, let me take that back. Embedded within this text, there's Judeo-Arabic for the request, and when He's talking to the Rambam, he gives him honorifics and blessings, it's written in Hebrew. And there was one line that ca caught my attention there, where he writes in Hebrew, Have long life. Beautiful bracha. The beautiful flower, your pleasant flower should live for you. He should be guarded from all evil. You should raise him with wisdom and with Yiris uh, Hashem. And may the Pasuk, where there's a Nevoah that says that your children are going to take over your position and they're going to fill your shoes after you pass on, may that happen. What's this? This is a reference to Rabbi Ram ben Arambam. Uh, Rabbi Ram ben Arambam is already alive and he's giving a bracha. He's calling him a parach anoim, this wonderful flower. And he's giving the Rambam the ultimate wish. The ultimate wish of the Rambam is that after he passes away, his son should be able to take over. And that is indeed what happened. Rabbi Ram ben Arambam was a giant in his own right and this happened. But the larger context of this letter is you have I have philosophical questions. I want to come discuss it with you. So what do you think the Rambam would have answered? The Rambam answered on the back of the same piece. Here is the Rambam's. Unfortunately, it's, 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 it's um, faded compared to the original. Uh, but let's read what the Rambam wrote. He wrote here as follows. 
I understand your intentions. May God fulfill your desires and increase your wisdom. You surely have seen and heard about the extent to which I am under the yoke of non-Jews. I am broken to pieces from morning to evening. I return at night feeling sick and in pain. I can't sit due to my extensive <coughs> fatigue, so I am forced to lay on my back. So in other words, no meeting happening. Now he says, come to the base medrash, eat Shabbos, and then you will inevitably gain a little of what you wish to get from me. Perhaps Hashem will provide some free time for study and teaching. Have abundance of peace. Your diet should be, because he had asked also a medical question about your diet. So if you cannot eat cooked foods, foods, let it be almonds and raisins. It's not harmful to sometimes put honey on your bread. Okay, so this is, now, I want to show you something amazing here. We're going to zoom in to the 20th line of this letter. See the second to last word. Looks like it says something like key. What's on top of that word? Fingerprint. And whose handwriting is this? The Rambam's handwriting. The ink is wet. We may have here the Rambam's fingerprint. That's an amazing thing. That's an absolutely amazing thing. Okay, so this is Rambam as a philosopher, and now we're going to move to Rambam as the doctor, as the physician. So we saw in the previous letter that Rambam was saying, I have no time, I'm busy, I'm under the yoke of non-Jews, I'm fatigued. This reminds, there's a very famous letter of the Rambam that's not a Gniza letter, that actually came down from generation to generation, that is on the same theme of the previous letter. And this really connects the Rambam's life as a medical phys uh, 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 physician. So the letter basically says, let me give you the background to this uh, briefly. The Marin of Ochem was written in Judeo-Arabic. It needs to be translated into Hebrew. There's a Jew by the name of Shmuel Ibn Tibbin. He lives in Provence in France. He gets his hands on the book. He knows Judeo-Arabic. He's going to translate it. He writes to the Rambam a whole bunch of questions to help him with the translation. And then he says, can I come for a visit? Similar to, I want to come from Provence, sail to meet with you. The Rambam basically says, not such a good idea. And here, this is the letter the Rambam writes. I live in Fostat. And the sultan resides in Cairo. Today, Cairo is one big city, and Fostat is part of the larger city of Cairo. In, in the Middle Ages, uh, Cairo was just a palace city, like Shushan Abira. That was where the government offices and the palaces were. And then the people lived in Fostat. And these two places are two Tchumei Shabbos distant from each other. My duties to the sultan are very heavy. I am obliged to visit him every day, early in the morning. And when he or any of his children or concubines are sick, remember they have Pilachim, a harem, the sultan there had uh, many... Uh, Many, I would say, wives, but they're not called wives. I cannot leave Cairo, but must stay during most of the day in the palace. It's inevitable that I have to attend to a minister or a sick officer or two each day and involve myself in their healing. Hence, as a rule, every day, early in the morning, I go to Cairo. And even if nothing unusual happens there, I do not return to Fostat until the afternoon. Then I am famished, but I find the antechamber filled with Gentiles, nobles and common people, judges and policemen, a mixed multitude, who know the time of my return. I dismount from my animal, wash my hands, go forth to them, and entreat them to bear with me while I partake of some light refreshments, the only meal I eat in 24 hours. Then I go to attend to them and write prescriptions. At times, patients go in and out until nightfall. And sometimes, as the Torah is my faith, meaning he's a lashon of a shvua, until two hours or more into the night. I converse with them while lying down from sheer fatigue. When night falls, I am so fatigued I can hardly speak. In consequence of this, no Jew can convene with me or befriend me except on Shabbos. On that day, the whole congregation comes to me after the davening when I instruct them about the practical matters for the coming week. We study together a little until noon when they depart. Some of them return and read with me after Maidiv. There you see, not everyone came back for, uh, for Mincha Maidiv at the end of Shabbos. Okay, this is how I spend my days. 
I have related to you only a part of what you would see when you complete this commentary for our brethren that you already started, meaning the Targum of the Mar Nevochim. Um, for once you started a mitzvah, you must complete it. Then come for a visit, not for the benefit of studying with me, because my time is extremely constricted, so not, but then come for a visit anyway later. This Rambam, this letter of the Rambam came down through the generations, it's been printed, and it's a twin with the other letter that I showed you before that comes from the Geniza, where the Rambam is, is, is saying he, he can't have meetings with people because of his obligations. What of his obligations? What are the yoke of the non-Jews? Is referring to this up. To this, to this uh, job that he had as physician. Well, why did Rambam become a physician? Why would someone who's writing Jewish books and is a Jewish leader, a leader of the community, he's dealing with the captives, he's dealing with all of these things, why is he becoming a physician? So there's an answer for that. Another document in the Cairo Gniza, which uh, is written, and we're not going to get into how they figure this out, but it's written by Rambam's... Uh, uh, oh, no. Oh, okay. Um, uh, We'll get there in a second. Uh, so once Rambam is a physician, so we'll talk for a moment about some of his medical writings. There are a ton of uh, medical writings from the Rambam that have been preserved in the Cairo Gniza. Here, uh, this is, is, uh, pertains to one particular uh, thing. The assumption is, and you'll soon see why, that he wrote this for a non-Jew, perhaps someone who was in the, king, the court of the king. Uh, there's the first mitzvah in the Torah is Pururavu, and I guess non-Jews have that mitzvah uh, too on some level or another. And what happens is that sometimes it's uh, difficult for a man to perform that mitzvah for various reasons. And so uh, certain medications need to be taken. So the Rambam here prescribes a medication for that purpose. He writes, if one takes this famous iron water and boils it in four measure, some measurement of ox tongue, half an ounce of lemon peel, half of a dirham of beaten carnation, and one mixes two riddles of wine or a riddle of honey, and he writes, here's a parenthesis, for one who does not consider wine permissible, in other words, it should be wine, but if you don't consider wine permissible, you can use honey. What is that? The Muslims. The Muslims don't drink wine. That's the assumption this is written for Ananju. And drinks this little by little, it will be of great avail. This much is sufficient for what the servant was ordered to do. In other words, now I've done my job, you asked me to help you out with uh, the performance of this mitzvah, and uh, this is what I have done. So this is one example of many examples of Rambam's uh, medical, uh, medical writings. In this context, you also have this letter here in the Cairo Gniza, where basically someone writes to the Rambam that he wants... Uh, uh, hit the Rambam to take on his son and to be, uh, his son should apprentice for the Rambam being his assistant uh, so that he could learn how to become a doctor and he says he's going to give him a very uh, nice fee. Okay, so this is the Rambam as the doctor. Why did he become a doctor? Goes back to the story of his brother. There's a letter in the Cairo Gniza of the Rambam's brother to the Rambam and he writes to my beloved brother Reb Moshe ben Maimon I arrived in Adihab and found no imports had come here, meaning his brother was a businessman, and he went to this place in order to buy schayda to be able to sell it. But there was no schayda to buy. So now he needs to go somewhere else to make his money. So I thought about what I had endured in the desert and how I was saved. I took it out. There's a whole aliches here, how he missed his caravan. So does he go through the desert without a caravan? It's dangerous. He decided to do it anyway. He took the risk. He went through the desert without the caravan. The, the, he got there before the caravan got there, and the caravan turns out they were hijacked, they were robbed, they lost all their money, and he, who went himself in the desert, he came out okay. So he was feeling really good about his, uh, uh, about his luck, I guess. And so he thought about how he was recently saved, and it appeared to me an easy matter to embark on a sea voyage. So you know what? Let me go further, and I'm going to go out on sea. 
I am doing all of this out of my continuous effort for your material well-being, although you have never imposed me anything of the kind. What does he mean here? The Rambam's brother supported the Rambam. The Rambam didn't need to work for a living, and, and he didn't take communal money. And the Rambam has a famous position, we can't get into this too much today, in the Rambam, where he says, Mishnah Torah, you're not a, a scholar, you're not allowed to take money for teaching Torah, you're not allowed to take money for being a Rav. Okay, this is a very controversial thing. The Rambam had this position. So where did he get his money? His brother was a businessman. His brother invested the initial capital from the Rambam, and the Rambam didn't have to work for a living. He lived off of this. Here's a map of some of the trade routes that existed at the time. Uh, so I'll just... Here is Cairo, and uh, th this is the desert where this, the initial story happened. And now uh, he's making a decision to cross the Arabian Sea to go to India for some sort of business. Now, the reason also to, uh, for just some historical context, before the Crusaders came, if you lived over here, you did bi business in the Mediterranean Basin. Why not? Okay, much easier access over here. The problem was when the Crusaders came to Eretz Yisrael, they take over the entire Mediterranean, and if you're coming from an Islamic land, they don't let you do business, and they're, they're pirating and doing all of that. So this gets closed off. For all the Jews who are living in Cairo, this whole area gets closed off, and many of them start turning this way to India. Uh, and so that, and so this is the context of what's happening for uh, uh, his brother, uh, uh, whose name was David, I believe. Now, we have a tshuva. So here we see that he's about to take a, a sea voyage. That's Gniza. Without the Gniza, there's a letter that came down from the through the generations, from one generation to the next, not a Gniza letter, that the Rambam is writing about his brother. And he writes over here how he's having a very big tsar. The Rambam writes, have a very big tsar. He's been ill. He lost a lot of money. Moisrim are trying to kill me, he writes. And the worst thing is what just recently happened, he's writing in a letter. The worst thing that ever happened in my life, and that's the tzaddik, the, tza the, the tzaddik who passed away in the Indian Ocean. He had a lot of my money, he had a lot of his money, and he had a lot of money that he owed other people. And he left a young daughter and an almana by me. And now, I, for a year after hearing about this, I was stuck in bed with illness and I wasn't able to get out of bed and it almost felt like I was dying. Uh, and from that day till today has been eight years and I have not been comforted. Uh, how could I be comforted? He was my younger brother. He grew up on my, uh, on my knees. Uh, he was the brother. He was the student. He was the one who was Nisif and Nisif Bashuk. He's the one who did business and earned profit. And I was able to sit quietly and learn Talmud and Mikra and Diktuk Haloshin. And uh, um, I had no joy was the joy that I had when I was able to see uh, him. And any time I see his handwriting, uh, I turn into, uh, fall into a depression. And were it not for the Torah that gave me strength, I don't know if I'd be able to survive. So you twin it together. You have a letter that came down from the generations here. This is after he died. And we know that he was about to take a, a, a sea voyage. So some people have assumed that that's right before. This is after. Anyway, this is the background of why Rambam becomes a doctor. He can't take money for teaching Torah because he holds you're not allowed to. And so what he does is he needs to practice medicine. And that's the background for his very, very busy schedule that he's having over there. So after seeing all these different areas of the Rambam's life, where that leaves us is, where toward, especially toward the end, is that Rambam had it a little difficult. And that will lead us to our conclusion, because the Rebbe spoke about this on two occasions. So Yudshvah Tavshalam Beis was a lengthy sicha about the need to see the positive in the world. And although we face challenges and difficulties all the time, 
And it is therefore easy to fall into the trap of saying, life's terrible, life's horrible, the world is a rotten place. The Rebbe said, this is a mistake. We always need to try to find the good. We always need to try to find the positive. And the Rebbe here mentioned at this Fabreng and said the following. When we read the letters of the Rambam, we see there a letter where he writes about his life, about his, the order of his day. And we see that in, in actual fact, there, there isn't a person who has as much uh, uh, suffering and difficulty. Um, and this is when he was already an older person. Uh, he's already uh, mature. He's already in the chatzar of the sultan. Uh, with all the details that he writes over there about his difficulties, weakness in his body, and the anxieties that he had. So here the Rebbe seems to be referring to that letter to Ibn Tibbin about his daily schedule and how he has no time uh, whatsoever. And yet the Rebbe goes on to say, B'Shas, you look in the Sefer, Mern Vukim, you're able to see that he was optimist and he had a positive perspective in life. I'll share, I'll share with you what that means in a moment. Uh, then there's a letter of the Rebbe in Tafshin Yur Aleph where the Rebbe writes to someone who is going through a very, very difficult time. And the Rebbe was trying to impress upon this person that it's not so much the circumstances that matter, it's your attitude that matters. And the Rebbe said, We see clearly that to a large extent, that events that happen to you, the extent that it affects you depends on you. How you uh, relate uh, to them. And then he goes on and says, Let's, the best example is the Rambam. His external life, meaning his day-to-day life, had all of these troubles that he faced. And nonetheless, his life perspective, as it surfaces through in his books, his perspective was, it's optimistic optimistic. To the, on the other hand, we see other people. They're very successful. And nonetheless, only once in a while, do we see in them any satisfaction. Presumably, you would think that it would be the other way around. Success leads to satisfaction. And uh, troubles lead to sadness. And what the Rebbe is trying to show here is that it's not necessarily the case. Of course, we all want success. Of course, we want to avoid troubles. There's no doubt. And there's no doubt that it plays a role in our psychological life. I don't think the Rebbe is denying the fact that circumstances can and do shape how, uh, shape how we feel about things. But at the end of the day, it doesn't have the final say. The final say is with the human being to choose how they want to react. And in two different occasions, we see the Rebbe using the Rambam as a model for this. So the troubles, we know. We saw the letters. We saw the story. We know his brother. By the way, add to this the fact that he was, why did he leave Spain? He was chased because the Almahad said that if you're Jewish, then you're going to get killed. So there, definitely we see that in the, in the Rambam's life. But what is his optimistic perspective? In a nutshell, in Murnavuchim, there's a lengthy discussion. The Rambam gets into a discussion about whether this world is a good place or not. Whether there's more evil in this world or more good in this world. And he brings from uh, Muslim philosophers who said that there's more evil than good. And the Rambam says that this is wrong. And he doesn't just say this for one or two lines. He devotes a full chapter to this discussion in going piece by piece, um, uh, dismantling this philosopher's arguments and explaining how actually this world is full of chesed, is full of God's kindness. In fact, there's a very famous thing that is in some Maimarim and that the more something is necessary, the more easily it is obtainable. And we have this in the Mayim Rabbim of the 
of the middle, in, um, one of the Maimorim of the Reb Marash and the subsequent Rebbeim. So it's like ear, everyone needs, is free. Water, okay, you need it, but not as much as ear. Okay, so it's very cheap, right? Food, that's more, uh, more expensive. You could, you could, ear, you need more. Water, a little less. Food, a little less. And the Rambam uses that, just one example from the chapter where the Rambam shows how nature is full of chesed. It's very conducive for life, and this is all not random. It's given to us by Hashem, and so therefore we need to have an optimistic perspective. The Rambam had every, every excuse to go the other way, to become really bitter. Sometimes our, our perception of reality gets tinged when we experience negativity, and all of a sudden everything is negative. And the Rambam was uh, able to overcome that, and the Rebbe is saying that this is something that we could look at uh, ourselves and implement into our lives to the degree that's possible. So I hope this is something that we could do, and everyone could do this, because all this material is online. We could, the Rambam, we don't have a, an exact image of what he looked like. I, I don't believe that the image we have today is, is a reflection of what he looked like. We have his Torah, we have his works, but when we look at all these different pieces, all of a sudden the man comes alive. We have his fingerprint, we have his handwriting, we have the meetings that he had, we have the food that he was eating, we have the day-to-day -day life, and when we're able to do that, he becomes alive. And when he becomes alive for us, it's a good reminder that the Rebbe asked us that we should learn Rambam every day. And so that's something that today is a very good time because tonight, meaning Tuesday night, is the Siyum of the Rambam. And this is important that we're all here now to celebrate that Siyum, which, we'll uh, which we'll do right now, and to consider maybe we could get better in how we do Limud HaRambam as well. So just bear with me right now and we'll make a quick uh, Siyum.